uh, if I could, uh, just for a minute, I want to uh, take the liberty of uh, asking you for something because they've um, uh, they've asked me to, to be the head of Czech Missions. The church uh, each year sends a, a team over to work in the Czech Republic to um, work with a small church there. It's got about 30 members. And uh, we help them run a summer camp for kids. And uh, one of the great things, several of the great things that come out of this camp is that the church there has a preschool. And this is, they use that preschool as a way to to do kind of an outreach ministry in the in the uh, the city there, because a lot of the a lot of the kids that end up coming to the school are coming from atheist households. So this is really the um, you know as young kids, this is their first exposure to learning things about God and Jesus and the Bible. And um, but they use that school to, as a as an outreach to try to get young families interested in coming to their church. And this the uh, the camp that we help them run during the summer is another way to get people to, to know about not only the church, but also the school. And so this camp has been going now for about 10 years, and we have about 100 kids every summer. And in fact, they've, the last few summers, they've had to turn away some folks because they, we don't have enough staff to manage you know, more than, say, 100. Um, so anyway, they put me in charge of this because I've been going for, this will be my fifth year, and John Bolton, who has led it for the last 10 years, uh, needed a break, and so they asked me to do it. And I'm happy to do it. I love it. I love going there. I love the people there. I love the, the pastor and his wife and the, the people at that church. It's just a, it's a great week. Uh, there's uh, seven of us going this summer, and I've got three people who are going that really can't afford to go. We asked people to raise about $1,500 $1, to cover the, the flight. And uh, the three people that are going uh, really just have a hard time meeting that. Uh, goal. So if you are at all interested in helping us with that in any way, please see me or if you don't even you don't even have to talk to me about it, you can just write a check and put it in the collection plate at church and uh, <laughs> put on the byline or the memo line check missions and uh, we would greatly appreciate it. But I'd be, I'd be delighted to talk to any of you about it and, and give you any information you might need um, in addition to what I've already said. So uh, think about that. If you can help us, I would really appreciate it. And I know those three folks would, would too. So, okay, let's move into our lesson for today. Um, this past week marked the uh, 75th anniversary of the White Rose Group. Did you see this in the paper? Um, I didn't know much about it, but um, I looked into it. Uh, this past week in preparation for this lesson, and uh, this is a group of, of young people who spoke out against Hitler in 1942, and um, they were young students, and this is long after the war had started, and uh, the, I'm, I'm going to give you some of the names here. Alexander Schmorell uh, was one of the ringleaders of this group called the White Rose Group. And what they would do, they print uh, pamphlets, and they would distribute these pamphlets all over the city. They lived in Munich, and, the, and the, the group was sort of headquartered in Munich. And they would just go around, go around passing out pamphlets, denouncing Hitler and saying the war was a mistake, and these concentration camps are an affront to humanity, and, and those kind of things. They also would go around at night um, painting graffiti on walls, saying, down with Hitler, and the war is a mistake, and all these things. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, these people were brave. Well, um, so it all came crashing down 75 years ago and three days from today. So it's the 75th anniversary on February 23rd was when they were finally caught and the Gestapo caught up with them and uh, put, them, put them in jail and ended up killing them after a, a, like a mock trial. 
they actually guillotined them. They, they cut their heads off, which was it's just horrible to think about. But um, how they got caught, there was a, a two, two of the, the groups, um, Han, two of the, the members, Hans Scholl and his little sister Sophie, were uh, on the campus of the University of Munich. And they were, they were putting these pamphlets in all the classrooms and under the doors of all the faculty. And they got to the top of the, it's like a three-story building, I think. And Sophie had a stack left. And they were like, well, we've got all these, these left, and we've put them under everybody's doors. What are we going to do with them? And Sophie said, why don't we just throw them off the balcony? And so they would just flutter down over this three-story balcony, and they just landed everywhere. Well, there was a janitor at the bottom of the staircase working late that night, and he saw the pamphlet. He locked the doors and called the Gestapo, and that's how they got caught. So, as I said, those kids were arrested and killed uh, by the... By the, the um, you know, by Hitler's people. And uh, so we're celebrating 75 years um, since, since their, their efforts, their courageous efforts to uh, speak against that terrible regime, uh, you know, came to an end. So these are some pretty impressive kids, I think we would all agree. I mean, imagine those, that would, you know, imagine that being your grandkids or your, you know, your niece or nephew or, you know, brother or sister. I mean, you'd be really impressed to tell that story that those people had that kind of courage. I wanted to use that to help us to think about a story from the Old Testament that's got also some pretty impressive young people. And uh, I wanted to look at that story today. They too stood up to significant power in the uh, face of uh, imperial pressure to conform, to do what everybody else was doing. The story I have in mind involves three young people named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But you know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's right, exactly right. Very good. Their story takes place in the, in the book of Daniel, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, you might want to go ahead and pull them out because we're going to be reading uh, about half of that chapter, I would say. Uh, we'll, we'll read that in just a moment. Uh, let me give you a little bit of uh, context for this story. It's always helpful when the guy leading the class has his Bible open to the right page. <laughs> Let me give you just a little bit of context because we're, we're entering the story in chapter 3 and uh, let me just give you a little context to where, where the story brings us to at the beginning of chapter 3. Um, these three young men were, according to the story, taken into exile with Daniel, their friend, for whom the book is named. And uh, this happened about 10 years before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple. There were actually two invasions of the, the Babylonian army. So the first one came in 597 B.C. He'll come back later in around 587 to uh, finish the job, essentially. But in that first wave, they came in and they besieged the city, and they basically said, all right, we're going to make you pay tribute, and part of that tribute is to give us a bunch of your talented young people. And so these young people were you know, hauled off into captivity and, and, and basically became uh, people who worked for the empire. So they're put, put into this training core that they, they used them probably for all sorts of things. So Daniel and his three friends end up as a part of that group, and they're hauled off into to captivity. So imagine that life. I mean, let's imagine that they're teenagers at that point. And then within the decade, you know, you've been ripped out of your home, taken to a foreign land, forced to do work for this empire that you don't know much about, learn a new language, and function as people who help the very entity that ripped you out of your homeland. And then within a decade, people start coming from your homeland and saying, you know what they did? They burned our temple down. They destroyed our capital city. And now we're all exiles. Um, these, that had to be a very strange life. 
a very strange existence. But these folks um, found a way to hold on to their faith amidst all of that separation from homeland, separation from family, uh, again, all the things I mentioned. Uh, it's, it's, it's really quite impressive that they uh, will do what we will see them do. So let's, uh, let's jump right in and, and see what it is they do. So uh, let's read uh, chapter 3. This is Daniel 3. I'll read uh, 1 to 12. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other officials assembled for the dedication of that image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, we have a long list of stuff in this chapter, so <laughs> officials and musical instruments. Horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as you hear the sound of all those instruments, uh, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews, and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of all of those instruments, they must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Okay, so let's stop there talk a little bit about uh, the details here. So as we mentioned earlier, Nebuchadnezzar is the king, right? We all remember him, the same one who destroyed their homeland or will destroy it within, as I said, a decade. I wanted to focus especially on verse 2 here. What do you think the significance is of verse 2's mentioning of it being a dedication? Now maybe this is a subtle reading of it, but ask yourself this. What are these kids asked to, to do? Um, it may be that they're asked to bow down to this thing all the time. That could be. But what, what do you think about a dedication? What does that sound like? Does that sound like something that's done every week or every month? It sounds like it might be a special occasion where they only do it once. So, I mean, come on, let's think about this. What would you do? Even if you were convinced that it was wrong, because the Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me. But you're a young person, and, you know, what, 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 what was that life like? I mean, that's, that's what interests me about this. Um, so they're faced with all of this in the wake of everything we already mentioned. And it just seems to me that it would have been really easy to justify in their mind. Ah, yeah, it's just one time. Surely we can, you know fudge a little bit here, right, and just play along and bow down to the thing and be done with it, right? Um, but they were, they were convinced that they just simply could not do that. And that to me is pretty amazing. Um, 
So that, that uh, the notion of it being a dedication might really ramp up the whole, uh, I don't know, the pressure, the, um, the pressure to conform to do what everybody else is doing, uh, but they nevertheless, uh, we're going to see that they're going to refuse and, and have already refused because it's been reported to the king. So, um, none of that seemed to matter to them. They, that we'll see that they stand literally for what they believed. They refused to bow down. And they believed that that was an important way to live out their faith in the midst of exile. Well, let's, uh, let's continue. Chapter uh, still in 3, uh, 13 to 18. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kind of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Um, let's think about being there and witnessing this. I, this reminds me of my biology teacher, Miss Stallings. I suspect everybody here had a biology teacher or somebody like Miss Stallings. She demanded uh, absolute obedience in the classroom. And she had a look that when she made eye contact with you, it worked. It enforced the regimentation of the classroom that she wanted. And uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so all of us probably can relate to that, right? You have you remember that teacher that you just knew that just don't don't mess around in that classroom. And you remember the day when a new kid came in or somebody who didn't know came in and did something wrong. And you could just see Miss Stallings, you know, eyes get big, frowner, you know, directed right to that student, and you knew trouble was coming, right, for that kid. Well, that's kind of, I mean, that's, Nebuchadnezzar is that times what, 100? I mean, this is the imperial head of the world superpower of the day. And this young kid, he's probably 20, 25, who knows how old this kid is, has the audacity to say no to this guy. And they're not being a jerk about it, right? They're not being brats. They're just simply saying we can't do this because of our faith. We can't do uh, what we're being asked to do. So, yeah, um, Miss Stallings times 100 here. Um, it's also very interesting to see what they, the very first thing they say. Did you notice that? Uh, they say, we do not need to defend ourselves. I mean, if those were our kids, I, I was thinking about my kids. I, we've got a 20-year-old, so we know a little bit about what these kids might have been like. We probably would have said, that's not really the way you talk to an adult. Don't, don't talk to a king that way, right? Don't say, I don't have any need to respond to you, O king. <laughs> so maybe there's a little bit of hoodspin here in addition to the, the faith. But 
um, we probably would instruct them to be a little more differential. But did you also notice the line from King Nebuchadnezzar where he says earlier in that, uh, go back to verse 15, what God will be, a be able to rescue you from my hand? And they had prob that's probably a line that they had heard a time or two at least, you know, living there in, Nebu in, the, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Um, you, you could probably imagine people on the street saying, yeah, guess your God didn't work out so good for you now, huh? Where's Yahweh now? What? What's that God's name? Yahweh? Mm -mm. He was defeated. Your God is useless. It's, it's the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Babylonian gods, right, who are victorious. So they probably heard that before. And so Nebuchadnezzar kind of plays that with them. What God will be able to save you from me? You know, the superpower, the empire of the day, um, that's, that's just not going to work for you. So um, we get to verse 16, and this is where, to me, the, the story gets rather amazing. Um, because here... This is where they confront the king, of course, but in 17. 17 is the verse that I wanted to focus in on. My, I'm reading the NIV here, and it says, If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But it's pretty ambiguous about how to translate this line, and I'm curious. We may have some translations here that, that render it differently. But I... Uh, I got online and printed off all of, there, there's, there's websites that you can find like 20 different versions of, of you know, the translations. They're kind of nice. This is, the, uh, this is the Jewish Bible, the JPS Torah, the Jewish Publication Society. Listen to how it's a little bit different. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us, he will deliver us from the burning fire, fiery furnace from your hand, O king. So see how that's different? In the NIV, it, it renders it, uh, our God is able. It's a statement. But in the JPS Torah, it's, it's, it's more of a, we call it a conditional clause, right? If, if our God is able to save us. I'm teaching Aramaic right now in, um, at, at Emmanuel, and uh, it's one of the languages in which the Bible is written. It's only uh, two books of the Bible have Aramaic in it. Actually four, but we won't count the phrase in a, a sentence in Jeremiah. Uh, the, this verse came up in class and we've been talking about it and it's very interesting how to translate this and I think the JPS Torah has it right. I think it should be an if clause. And let me tell you why I think it's right. It's right on a number of reasons. It's right grammatically, but it's also right contextually. If they're saying, if, if, if you can imagine them saying, if our God is able to save us, he will save us. That to me fits remarkably well with somebody who's gone through their experience. Because ask yourself this, what evidence do they have that their God is powerful? They don't have a lot. I mean, they have their lives, they have their health, that's true. But probably every marker of God's power has been removed from their life. The temple, God's house, has been burned to the ground. God's nation has been dissolved. God's people have been scattered. So, do you see how somebody can make a fairly good case to them that, you know, I don't know about your God. If, if you serve a powerful God, that's a bizarre thing to say to, about that God. God doesn't seem very powerful. So, I think it's actually pretty good. It's a pretty good translation to say, if our God is able to, to save us, he will. Is it like 
That's what I think. And yeah. It's something they felt in their heart that if my God is with me, He will save me. Yeah. I think that that's their perspective. They are, they are faithful that their God would be willing to save them, but they're not sure that He can, because pretty much everything in their life has suggested otherwise, and that's why I think it makes sense to to render it that way. But you'll, you're hard pressed to find a lot of mainstream uh, translations that render it this way. But I've got, I think I've got five here. Good News Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the NET Bible all render it as if clauses. And I think that they're right. That's the, to me, that's the best way to read it. It makes sense, and it, it, it works grammatically. When you're thinking about the fire, I mean, it's, it's not like just rescue me from the pit. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's pretty scary. I mean, I, I can't think of a few other... I mean, that's a pretty gruesome death, isn't it? To get thrown into a fire. Um, yeah, uh, that's pretty scary. And they must have had a, a lot in their heart yet and in their mind of how they were brought up in their faith to begin with before they were yanked out of there. Right. That there was enough there to sustain them. Yeah, their Sunday school teachers have to be extremely proud, right? <laughs> Mom and dad, grandparents, like, man, these kids, we trained them right. They, they know. Yes, question in the back. And you were just saying, you saying they had enough faith to sit there and, and you know, uh, rebuff, you know, the king's demands. But to me, there's still a big, there's a very big difference between being hopeful and being faithful. Okay. Would you repeat the question? Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat it. As Keep going. I'll, I'll try to relay. I think there's a very big difference though, between hopeful and faithful. And the two interpretations are very different. Mm-hmm. And I think hopeful reflects more of a younger person's faith <laughs> or beginning faith journey. Mm-hmm. Whereas the more committed reading that you, that you started off with may be more of a committed what I'm going to say is truly dedicated or committed, you know, uh, commitment to the religion. Yeah, yeah. And I think two very different points. Right. Okay, let me relay what you said, and everybody will hear it. Uh, Make sure I can uh, summarize it. So the point is is that uh, it sounds as though the two interpretations of this verse uh, can be summarized with hopeful on the one hand and faithful on the other. And the suggestion is, is that uh, if we assume that it's an, it's a, an if clause, um, that that's more like a mature, uh, seasoned, faithful response, whereas um, the other option, that is the way the NIV has it, is more of a kind of youthful, shall we say naive? That's not the word you used, but um, naive hopefulness in God's power. Did I, re- did I represent you well or no? <laughs> Actually, 180, 180 degrees. Okay. That's the other way around. Okay. I think a, a person like Bishop Salmon, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Bishop, um, who's the Bishop called this up? Yeah, Dick Looney. I'm sorry, I had a brain fart. Sorry. I, had a brain fart. <laughs> I lost him six years. His is a truly, tr- I mean, the truest dedication to religion that I have seen in a man in a long time. Yeah. I mean, he just, you know, shines faith in, in his religion, okay? He's the guy who's going to be committed 
and know that he's going to be saved from the fire of, you know, death. Okay, a 25-year-old who's saying, "Eh, uh, I'm not going to kneel for you." He's hopeful, I think, uh-huh. that he is going to be saved. He's going to go out on a limb. He's not going to have the same dedication that a bishop, you know, uh, is going to have over it. So I think, you know, the if clause really shows the wavering faith of a young person, you know, you know, standing in the face of a king. Okay. Yeah, uh, so it ends up being not only uh, kind of a youthful uncertainty, but also maybe a way to be more deferential maybe too, to say, not sure if our, king, our God is that powerful, but is that? Yeah. Okay, so originally it represented him absolutely the opposite. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Um, does, does it make a difference for you in the way to read it then about how it might apply? Because that's where we're moving with this. I want to kind of, you know. Hey, absolutely. I mean, yeah. if you're reading out of the NIV version and you're saying there is a strong, total, 100% commitment of this person's faith that he is going to be saved if he's thrown into fire by, king, by the king, mm-hmm. that's total commitment to the religion, 100%. Yeah. You know? and, that's, and that is striking to find in a young person. Yeah. You know, that is striking. Yeah. You know, um, how many of us in this room can say that we've had that kind of faith when we were 20? Mm-hmm. Okay. But now, I think most people in this room who have a little bit more gray hair would say, I am much more committed to my religion. I am probably of a stronger religious root. And I probably wouldn't kneel in front of the king who asked me to. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I appreciate your point of view. So, uh, again, let me just kind of relay that. Um, so again, the idea would be that uh, an older person who's more seasoned in the faith would have more of the um, more of the confidence that God is going to to do what we think God was, should should do in this situation. Whereas the younger person would be more less would be less likely to say that, and, and would be more likely to say the if clause. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I feel exactly the opposite. However, <laughs> the older I get, the more uncertain I am. Then let me give you this one example. All right, all right. Okay. Would you stand up? Please? We're going to have to do a uh, we're going to have to do a, a Donahue thing, and yeah. Uh, so how many of us, when we were 20, looked forward to death? Okay. How many of us, when we were 20, had the same faith in our religion? that Billy Graham did when he was 99. And when Billy Graham told us, you know, when I leave this earth, don't look at me as being gone, I'm now living with God. I just have a different address. That is an amazing commitment and faith to your religion. You are a believer of what comes after this life. That is a major victim of religion. Major victim of our religion. Yes. Do we have that when we're 20? No. Yeah, we I think, think we're going to sit there yeah. and say to a king, guillotine me, please. I'm ready to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah. Very few of us in yeah. Christianity have that, have that faith. Yeah, I think, you know, you'd have to convince me that that's true kind of across the board because I think that there are, I don't know if it would be equal numbers necessarily, but I do think there is a sense in which it could be the opposite for some people. I, I look at my own life. My own life is an exact opposite of that. I, I, I thought I had all the answers when I was 20. <laughs> and now... Billy Graham did have that faith when he was 20. He did. I believe that. Yeah. But yeah. this man was consistent throughout his life, so I don't think that's probably the best example 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, we're probably all on some sort of spectrum, right? In this, on this, what we're talking about here between absolute certainty of what we know God is going to do and what we might might say is absolute uncertainty, right? I think we're all on a different. I think. Do you find yourself and, there? And, and I, at different points in life. Yeah, feel like right. I think at different points in life, you know, I'm, my faith is stronger here, and then it might not be as strong, and then later it's stronger, and then uh, that's how, that's my own experience, and I've experienced that with, with other people as well. Uh, it seems to me that hopefully as we get over, our faith is more mature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mature faith, and of course with wisdom, as we get older and have studied more of the word, but do we have the courage to act on it in a situation mm-hmm. like this? I, I see those as two different things. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good point. Um, basically, talking about the courage to, to act uh, is the real point. Whether your uh, where your perspective is at any one time is not as important as your decision to do to, to act. Am I representing your point well? Good, yeah, so I think that, that those are all very good points, and I appreciate uh, everybody's feedback there. Um, I think at the, end, at the end of the day, these, these young people, how, however we end up translating that particular verse, I think at the end of the day, they, 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 they do constitute a, an amazing uh, witness to us. And if you, if you follow then in, in verse 18, um, it really kind of, uh, I think, strengthens the, the translation as the if clause, but even if you say that's not the way to read it, 18 actually makes it, really makes the point, I think, that you were just raising there, that even if uh, he doesn't, and so now we're in 18, even if he does not, and whether that means, uh, we, whether we should translate, as, translate that as, even if the if clause is not right, or if our assertion about him and his power is not right. At the end of the day, 18 makes it clear that they're committed to doing this irrespective of whether God can or God will, right? So that makes them amazing, I think. And at the end of the day, it really does come down to their action of affirming what they're going to do irrespective of what God does. They're committed to doing what they, in their heart, believe was the proper thing to do, which is to refuse to go along with, with everyone else. So I th- again, I think 18 is key here. Um, about the, the whole uh, the whole verse, we don't. Uh, I don't think we have time to to summarize the rest of the story, um, but let me let me just uh, do so, and then we'll see if you have questions. Do you remember how it ends? The, so the king gets angry, right, and throws him throws them into the fiery furnace, and before he does so, he uh, he has it heated seven times hotter. So he's making it even worse for them, right, because he's so angry. And um, so they, they're thrown into the fire, and somehow the king is able to see them in the fire. And I've always tried to picture what this looked like. Was it a pit that they were thrown down into? I don't know. <laughs> um, commentaries are all over the place on what this actually looked like. But in any case, three people are thrown in, but the king says, I see one like a son of God in there with them, four. He sees four in there. And a lot of people said, well, that's, that's the presence of God, or that's the presence of an angel that God has sent to, to be with them. So in a real sense, God's presence is there with them as they suffer, or as they potentially would have suffered. It turns out they don't, because somehow God you know, keeps the fire from being, being effective, and they're not burned. So the king says, hey, didn't we throw three in? Oh, I see four. 
must have been uh, something from God that, that was put in there to uh, protect them. So Nebuchadnezzar is amazed, takes them back out. In fact, their clothes don't even smell like smoke. That's how amazing uh, this, this story uh, is, uh, is d- the details of this story. So um, then uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, is convinced that, wow, these guys are amazing, and um, this God whom you serve is, is uh, capable of, uh, of saving his people. So that's really how the, uh, the, the story ends, but it stands as, again, a, a great example of, of uh, standing for convictions and bravely facing the consequences. They don't try to escape. They don't try to blow the place up. They don't try to kill the king. Um, they're willing to take the consequences of their, their faith stance. So I think that that's, um, that's a pretty amazing story for us all today, uh, one that I think will encourage us. Uh, but let me stop there and see if you have questions. Well, that's a good question. It doesn't seem so, but uh, we do have another story here that um, where Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for a while, um, and he he wanders around like an animal for a period of time, according to the book, and um, he he and, and the, the way the Bible couches that is he is uh, he's sort of struck by God for his arrogance, and he so for a time he he lives like a lowly animal, and then one day God allows him to. Gather, regather his senses, and he's able to come back and rule. So there, and there is actually some evidence in the uh, the Babylonian sources that Nebuchadnezzar was crazy. So there may be some, there's maybe a kernel of truth to that um, that is confirmed outside the Bible. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. How did you not believe? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, why, if you saw that, why would you not be so moved? To become a Yahweh worshiper, yeah. and I don't know, except to say that you know we all—that's <laughs> right—the proclivities to do the wrong thing is uh, pretty strong within within us all. I think, Dave. Jason, the, to me, verses 17 and 18 are a, are a strong commentary on not getting trapped in the God will rescue me yeah. from whatever. Right. That's right. Their commitment was, God can, He might, He might not. Yeah. It doesn't matter. My right. commitment is to Him, regardless. That's right. That's right. Not, I'm, I'm just, I'm going through. That's good. Let me repeat that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not being consistent with repeating here. Uh, so Dave was saying that um, 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, really show us that it kind of prevents this sort of easy confidence that God's going to do what I think God's going to do, right? Because we know that's not true. So, um, so it, it is. It's a, it's a very good, I think, instruction on how to proceed. That God, God, we believe God is powerful, but we also have lived long enough and seen the world and know world history enough to know that sometimes God doesn't intervene when horrible people do horrible things. And um, so these verses, I think, can really help us see that that's the stance we've got to have, whether it's we know God can. In other words, we, we're confident that he can, but he might not. But, but I think it's also acceptable to say, I'm not sure if he can. Because that's what this, this, these guys are saying, if you follow the other translation, which I think, I think that's the best way to read it. But it, it provides a rich tapestry, in my opinion. 
that you have these, these folks who their knowledge is imperfect. They don't know everything. They only know what they've experienced. And so in their experience, God hasn't come through. They're kind of like, I mean, imagine Jews living through the Holocaust. <laughs> if you're in Auschwitz, what do you think about God's power? If you ever want to see an interesting um, film about that, there's a film on YouTube called uh, God on Trial. Go home and Google it tonight and watch it. It's very moving. But these, these uh, Jews in this concentration camp put God on trial as a way to sort of complain to God and say, where are you? It's moving. It's disturbing in some ways, but it's very moving too. God on trial. Check it out sometime. It's really, it's really sad. But I think it, that's, that's what you see in there. That's this really rich tapestry of people trying to do the right thing. And they're just not sure. And they're being open and honest about it, which I think, the, and the Bible is full of that. I mean, read the Psalms. The Psalms have all the time, the psalmist is saying, where are you, God? I thought you were strong. Why are you not showing up? And it seems as though God's okay with that. It sounds a little disrespectful from our, but the, but the Psalms is about half of that. Half of the Psalms are made up of that voice. So to me, it's a rich heritage that they're a part of. And... Um, and I always tell my students that God's a big enough God to take it. You know, God can take our complaints. So I think it's I think it's wonderful. That was a question over here. Uh, yeah, I've read this <clears throat> many times, and one thing that always props up is where is Daniel? He's a, he's always in your face. Up right, up, right, right here. You know, he's the he is what second. He ends up that way. Yeah, later in the story, Daniel. The question was, uh, where's Daniel in all this? Right, Daniel's not even in the story. Um, but Daniel ends up being second in command later as he, as he becomes an old man. But at this point, right, it's, it's, under, the next, it's, it's under the next empire. But uh, at this point, yeah, he's, he's sort of off the stage. But, you know, they talk about him a lot. And then, right. I know it doesn't have anything to do with your lesson, but I just... I'll no, it's a good question, though. Yeah, it's a good question. He's just not on the scene here. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Randall? Uh, I've also read the Bible, too, that says that God does not owe us an explanation. Right, and that's true too. You get that side in the Bible, right? This is what Job's doing. You know, Job goes to God and says, "Listen, I would really like an indictment here because I don't, I don't really know what I did wrong." And so God finally shows up at the end of the Book of Job and says, "Well, you don't get one. <laughs> Sorry." <laughs> so the way Job ends is very much like kind of the experience the kids have here in some ways before they're saved. They're they're puzzled before the king, and I think that's where Job ends up too. He's puzzled. So there's no clear answers in the book of Job either, although God does tell him, you're not going to get what you're asking. You're not going to get an explanation for why good people suffer. Because, by the way, where were you when I created the earth, right? I mean, you weren't there, so you don't really have a claim here. <laughs> so, but, you know, God, so God kind of rebukes him there, and that's part of Job where you're like, oh, you know, but Job seems such a good guy. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's, that story, is it, it, it touches on the same idea, that uh, sometimes we just don't know, and we don't get the answers we want, and... Um, but people are still faithful, still like faithful. these guys, even though they don't, right. they're not sure, they're still... That's right, and that's Job, right? Job continues, even though his wife says, give it up, you know, give it up, just let it go, and Job says, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and yeah, and they become, they come down through the ages as great stories of faith, you know, great stories of... Uh, Honesty about their faith or lack thereof, or if you read it the other way, just honesty about they're not sure what God's going to do. At the end of the day, that's that's their perspective. That's so. why a lot of people, when something bad happens to them, they lose someone, and why did they die in the prime of their life? And that, where was God 
Right. You know, why didn't God help me? Why wasn't he there? That's right. He was there. That's right. And you know, Elie Wiesel, uh, some of you know that name, a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he ended up being an atheist after, um, in his later, and even, I think even after he uh, survived Auschwitz, he, he became an atheist because he really couldn't reconcile that. But um, he did come to the conclusion, though, that uh, God was there with them in that suffering. So his view of God was slightly different, that his, his God did not quite have the power to overcome. I mean, that, that, that tends to not be very satisfying to us, but it's very interesting to think about his life and the way he talked about Auschwitz as a, uh, as a time when the Jewish people suffered, but God was there with them. Which is interesting about, that has a connection to this story. The presence of that fourth person, I think, is the presence of God. And so God is in that, that fiery furnace with them. Now, they don't suffer because they're saved, but God is in the midst of them as they face that suffering. So that's, that's, I think there's some measure of comfort there for those who are struggling with these questions. Okay, um, final, final thoughts or questions? Let me just uh, close by uh, giving you the end of the story here about how we started. There was another woman involved in the, the White Rose group. Her name was Lisa Lett First, and she was 29, so she was slightly older than some of the younger kids who were these students passing around these pamphlets. Well, she never passed around any pamphlets, but she helped them keep them safe, and she helped print them and uh, store them for them so uh, that the Gestapo wouldn't find them. She was a war widow at the age of 29. Her husband had died on the Eastern Front. And so she was already a war widow even at that time at such a young age. She saw the madness of Hitler and she was drawn to the White Rose group. But the Gestapo arrested her as well because they knew her name associated with these kids. And so they put her in jail, but they didn't kill her. And we don't really know why they didn't. Maybe because she was a war widow and they, wanted, they didn't want to do that. Or it could have been that they wanted to release her and then follow her to see where, if she could lead them to more of the people who were in the group. In any case, she survived the war, and she lived to tell the story of the bravery of her friends. And she actually lived to see the 70th anniversary of the White Rose Group. She died, though, in, in, uh, just a few months later in 2013, which that was the 70th, 70th year. So she survives to tell the story. And that, to me, I, I want to see us today sort of in her, her shoes, that we we continue to tell these wonderful stories from the Bible, the stories of these young men and, and, uh, and the White Rose Group and others who have uh, stood for what they believed in the face of um, a lot of uh, you know, threat. And I think it can be very inspiring to us today to, uh, to walk faithfully, even though sometimes it's hard, and to, um, to trust God, even though we don't have all the answers, we don't, we don't live with certainty. We have to walk by faith, and that's what it means to have faith. But I hope this story has been a uh, encouragement to you as you uh, live out day to day, and I um, hope you'll be inspired by these young folks both 75 years ago and uh, all the way back into Bible times. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of uh, men and women who've gone before us who have really uh, inspired us with their faith, and I pray that you'll help us as we walk each day to, uh, to join them and be a part of that great tradition. And though we'll, we'll never be perfect in our faith, we pray that we will, uh, at times when um, we're faced with struggles, that we too will stand for what uh, you want us to do. So bless us this week. We know so many people are in need of our prayers, and we, we pray for those folks, and we lift them up, especially Wayne. And uh, we just pray for comfort and blessing and healing, and uh, help us all to be salt and light this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.